the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. I'm not sure people celebrating the ouster of three school board members in San Francisco are fully understanding the ground on which this battle took place, and thus what the victory is. First, yes, great job getting rid of those three. The recall wasn't close, and hopefully messages will be sent for the good. But second, as you know, I always point out, don't rest on the laurels or engage in any self-satisfaction that this temporary victory is anything like the end of the problem or the beginning of a new Weltanschauung. There's an old Confucian saying, when you leap for joy, make sure nobody removes the ground below you. Too often, we think we won and thus have won everything. It isn't true with judicial appointments, and it isn't true with presidential elections, and it isn't true in Virginia, and it isn't true in San Francisco, which itself is a city steeped in leftism. One might say in the vote yesterday, the left hand slapped the far left hand. And slapped is the right word because the mainstream of the left there has far left currents running deeply throughout it. Let us understand, first and foremost, what all these education fights are about. The first thing in this understanding is, uh, of what is, is to get what they are not about, and they are not about education, at least not for us. We think education is about teaching children what we were taught. How did William Wordsworth put it? What we have loved, others will love, and we will teach them how. Instruct them how the mind of man becomes a thousand times more beautiful than the earth. That is what we think of when we think of education. We think of giving our children what we got, math, reading, science, history, writing. And occasionally we even delight when we see occasionally our children reading some of the same novels we were brought up on and taught. That's our view of education. This is not the modern or progressive or leftist view. They do not view education that way. They view education the way you could intimate from hearing of organizations like the Communist Youth League, or the Socialist Youth League. The word is not education. The word is indoctrination and social change. Education means etymologically to lead forth. Indoctrinate means to imbue with an opinion or as the word states, a doctrine. We view education as training children up to be ready for the world and to engage it with everyone else. They view it as training children to change the world, hence revolutionize it. It's much like what Karl Marx said about himself. Prior to him, he said philosophers attempted to understand the world. His task, he wrote, was to change it. And to the left, you start as all progressive youth leagues start with the children. Do yourself a favor. Search children's gender books. You'll be shocked, truly. Not that they exist, but how many there are, just like you know, The Very Hungry Caterpillar and Harold in the Purple Crayon, but they're dedicated to promoting transgenderism. Way too many to count. It's its own industry now, not even a cottage industry. Let me try to quote 
one modernly fashioned education expert to try and help explain what we're getting at here. She is Cecily Mayart Cruz, and she is the president of the United Teachers Union of Los Angeles, which is one standard deviation to the right of San Francisco, to the right. When the debate over school openings was taking place last year, she was asked if she was worried over the learning loss nearly everyone knew our children had suffered from the COVID school closures. She said this, quote, our kids didn't lose anything. It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup, close quote. Well, count me as one who believes in teaching vocabulary, though I'm not sure I'd start eight-year-olds with insurrection and coup, especially when in the context of 2021, those words were highly politicized. But that's our view, not theirs. Their view is it's never too early. And not when she says our kids didn't lose anything. She's saying our view of math and science and reading and the rest are irrelevant. So long as the kids were indoctrinated in other things, like what a riot is and what a protest is. But, caution, to them, January 6th was a riot. To them, the BLM actions, 30 people killed, buildings and businesses burned, police precincts taken over, federal courthouses firebombed, billions of dollars wrecked. Those are protests. This is but one illustration I'm speaking of. And if you look at the three San Francisco board members who were ousted, you see perfect mirroring. They were not working on getting kids back in schools or even educated from a distance or at home. They were interested in other things like obliterating a mural, mural dedicated to George Washington and the names of Abraham Lincoln and Paul Revere, after whom some of the schools were named. Washington, Lincoln, Paul Revere. That was the enemy during COVID and during the summer of 2020. Why would Washington and Lincoln and American founders be the enemies? Obvious, no? They were the most prominent names affiliated with America being worthy of itself or just being America. And that's what needed to be chipped away at. Orwell put it that, quote, anything that was obviously of earlier dates was ascribed to some dim period called the Middle Ages. The centuries of capitalism were held to have produced nothing of any value. One could not learn history from architecture any more than one could learn it from books, statues, inscriptions, memorial stones, the names of streets, anything that might throw light upon the past was systematically altered, close quote. One of the school board members was even known as an anti-Asian bigot to those who care about bigotry against Asians, which in our modern fashion is not a bigotry we are supposed to care much about because some trick of cultural magic has placed Asians alongside Jews into the category of white or rather white oppressor. But it wasn't the taking down of Washington and Lincoln that really animated the San Francisco voters. That's just what the board members were up to when they weren't working to open the schools and improve virtual learning. <clears throat> you and I may care about the what these school board members were doing, like what I just said. Most San Francisco voter voters just cared that the schools weren't open because, to tell you the truth, what was being taught inside those bricks and mortar was, in fact, just as bad as what was going on in Virginia or too many schools everywhere else. It was about the schools not being open, not what was being taught in them when they were open or what board members were doing during the closure. 
So let's not celebrate too much too quickly. Nothing permanent was fixed yesterday. Here's what needs fixing, and Charles Kessler gives it to us in his new essay in the new issue of the Claremont Review of Books. Ronald Reagan, he writes, warned of the problem, then only a fist-sized cloud on the horizon 33 years ago in his farewell address. When Reagan said, quote, those of us who are over 35 or so years of age grew up in a different America, we were taught very directly what it meant to be an American. And we absorbed almost in the air a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. And if you didn't get a sense of patriotism from your family and neighborhood, you got it from school and popular culture, close quote. That was Reagan in his farewell address. By the cusp of the 1990s, however, Kessler writes, something had changed for the worse. Reagan captured it in a single understated sentence when he said, quote, younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children, close quote. The children of those ambivalent parents have grown up and begun to have families of their own, usually with fewer children. The growing uncertainty about the country now extends in many cases to the second and third generation of her puzzled citizens. Is it any wonder that a nation torn between loathing and loving itself seems sometimes to be on the verge of a nervous breakdown, Kessler asks? The American people hardly know what to think about America anymore. Less than three years ago, he points out, the New York Times announced in its 1619 project that American slavery was more fundamental than American freedom. Anti-black racism is in America's DNA, explained the project's organizer, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is black. Yet in the same condemning essay, she reconciled with her father, an Army veteran who had flown the American flag in his modest front yard every day of his life. I had been taught in school through cultural osmosis, Hannah Jones wrote, that the flag wasn't really ours, that our history as a people began with enslavement and that we had contributed little to this great nation, close quote. As a young woman, she felt ashamed that, quote, my dad felt so much honor in being an American dismissing his patriotism as a marker of his degradation. Let me pause to note something important here. Note, she was taught her dad was wrong. In school. Back to Kessler. But the older, wiser Hannah Jones had somehow come to realize that her father had a point after all. She writes, my father knew exactly what he was doing when he raised that flag. He knew that our people's contributions to building the richest and most powerful nation in the world were indelible. She draws the moral. We were told once by virtue of our bondage that we could never be American, but it was by virtue of our bondage that we became the most American of all, close quote. In some ways, it's a beautiful essay that can't abide the beauty of its own sentiments. It's the ambivalence, again. She knows her essay amounts or could amount with sufficient forgiveness for the undoubted evils in the American story to a vindication of American patriotism. But she cannot, Kessler argues, bring herself to make the full-throated pledge of allegiance her father did, even though she is attracted to it and understands now why he made it. Like so many others, she cannot bring herself to believe in her country's principles because it would be unsophisticated or politically incorrect to do so. So she is left with a paradox. How systemically racist can America be if it's downtrodden, are responsible for almost all of its political and moral progress. Though a small consolation, 
it, what, it's what keeps her analysis from veering into open anti-Americanism, where so many on the far left seem to want to go these days. Yes, yes, all of this is true. So Hannah Jones does not veer into open Americanism. No need to. In a liberal, or perhaps the better word is open society, you can internally simply change things without a coup. This has always been the case. The open society is far more susceptible to revolution without blood or bullet than tyrannical societies that oppose open dialogue, critique, dissent, or even the vote. You don't have to state you hate America here. You can simply change what America is or means, first by distorting its present and then going through slowly and surely and revising its past. For you know what? Somehow in all her learning, Hannah Jones finds it irrelevant, if not downright in need of ignoring and dismissing that the free part of this republic defeated the slaveholding part. And operating as if the president of the United States from 1861 to 1865 was Jefferson Davis and not Abraham Lincoln, and that he was succeeded by Alexander Stevens and not Andrew Johnson and then Ulysses S. Grant. No, no need to do this openly. Just go after the kids, start with the children, and to do that, start with the schools. And pretty soon you get new generations, just as Charles put it, that have nowhere to go and nothing to oppose the revisionism that has now become catechism. So, seeing what can be done in San Francisco, of all places, we should understand what should be done everywhere else and for the right and essential and fundamental reasons. Reasons that go to the purpose rather than simply to personnel. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. You can't not have a smile when you hear music like this. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. want to uh, welcome back uh, my dear friend and the vice president of everything important here, Chris Llewellyn, who is uh, producing the show today, Pro Tempore. Bill uh, is out uh, for the day, but he'll be back tomorrow. So, Chris, thank you, and uh, make welcome him uh, when you give a ring, uh, as you have been giving a ring. We'll start with Doug. Hi, Doug. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's just another wonderful day in this country, and it's full of lots of exciting things to be challenged with. I, I love and, your uh, energy. I, I do, and I, and, I, and I love being about people with lift. You have lift. Let me ask you a question. Do you exercise sure. regularly? Do you exercise? Yeah, I yeah. do. I do a yeah. lot of biking. Yeah. Yeah, a lot yeah, of biking. I, I, yeah. Something in your voice, I mean, I just... It makes a difference. If you can do it, it makes a big difference. I, I did something new today, too, and it just made me feel a lot different. I, I do a lot oh. of biking, too. I went back to running. I'm starting running again. I used to be a runner. Then I became a biker, and now I'm going back to both. So, yeah, I know the feeling, brother. Yeah, good for you. One of the things, my dad lived to be two months shy of 100. One of the things he always said was uh, some of the secrets to living old. He said many of his friends died 15 years before they were put in the ground. I get and, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, I get and so that. So his secret was, eat, you know, exercising, eating good food, yeah. not putting a burden on your body. But here's the big thing. Yeah. Mental attitude. Yeah. He said have passion for something. It doesn't matter what it is. Stay passionate about life. And uh, he did just that. We made him retire at 80. He built up another business for a six-digit income at 82. And finally, didn't I know? So he stayed mentally and physically active his whole life. And I want to have that same passion 
and glide gracefully into my casket and with nothing but happiness and love for everything I did. Yes, I got to find a quote. It's eluding me now about what the way we want to be thought of when we go to that casket or how we want to be speaking. Whose quote is it? It's I want to go. Anyway, I'll find it. Doug, thank you. Sorry, I'm not Dennis Prager, but I should do a show on this someday or an hour oh, or, or something. Oh, I, I think you an attitude of gratitude, shows. right? Attitude of gratitude. You know, one of the things. My when my mom passed away this a year or so ago, she was 92, and she had a massive stroke. And I was there, by we were all able to be there by her side. And I looked at my son and I said, you know, one of the greatest things is that when you're by someone who was not only your mother but a dear friend, you know, um, you know, develop the friendship once as we're adults, that we can I can be by her side during this and say I have zero regret. Mm-hmm. Whatever people say, I have too many times I've had people say, well, I finally resolved this after 30 years of pain. So my question to everybody is, if you can fix it at the end of your life out of regret, you can fix it 40 years earlier. You got it. It doesn't matter. You got it. By the way, uh, I, I remember the quote I wanted. You want it? Oh yeah, it's it's an yeah, odd yeah, it's an it. odd source, but what the hell? <laughs> Hunter Thompson, Hunter S. Thompson. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, "Wow, what a ride!" That's it. Yeah, now that's you're it. talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No regrets because you haven't hated your way. Yeah. You don't have anger you've loved all those you can add it with grace to those that you can't and have passion there's a simple little thing we also have on my desk is choose happiness people too many times wait for happiness instead of saying under any circumstance i can still choose happiness interesting it's a choice Every minute of every day. All right, I'm going to think know. on this, and if the audience uh, wants it, maybe we should do an hour on it someday soon. Oh, yeah. I, I believe it's, it's important for everything else, because we have so many big things and scary things. You know, sometimes my wife and I talk, oh, my God, you know, how can you, how can all this, our country, be slipping away? And I, I tell her, if uh, we were stuck at the fall of Rome, or if we were stuck in the Middle Ages and terrible things were going on, we could still have a beautiful I life. have a feeling that is very true of you. Of you. Yeah. <laughs> of you. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me yeah. do this, Doug. Um, uh, I, I, I wasted our time a little bit. No, it wasn't a waste. I didn't get us to the topic you wanted to get on. And I do have yeah. uh, John Dombrowski coming up. Do you want to just hang on for a second? We'll get to oh, you. Oh, I'll just, just – I'll, I'll wait. Okay, Absolutely. yeah. Just, we'll come right back to you in, in a um, – in a, in, a, in a few moments, I've got John, then I have another guest. So if you're willing to wait, I'd love to take your call if you want to uh, call back. Either way, your, your choice. As we head to break, let me put in a word for my friends at Balance of Nature. They are my friends because they are your friends. They are your friends because they help endow this show. I take Balance of Nature every day. The fruits and veggies that come in those great little capsules that are easy to swallow. If you don't like swallowing capsules, you can open them up and sprinkle it on food or in a drink. The only whole food supplement with no additives, fillers, extracts, synthetics, pesticides, or added sugar. The only thing in those capsules, pure fruits and vegetables. If you're thinking about starting a new supplement or taking supplements, why don't you take one from a company that supports our right to communicate and think. Balance of Nature. Go to balanceofnature.com. 
Check out their fruits and veggies. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE to get the best deal you can there. Balanceofnature.com, discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 after the hour brings us the great John Dombrowski. He of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, GrandCanyonPlanning.com, his website. He also has his own radio show right here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. called The Word on Wealth. What's the word today, John? How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you, Seth. Uh, I've got lots going on today. Yeah, I was looking at uh, something I wanted to pick your brain on. Mm -hmm. Uh, Retail sales up a little more than we thought. I think they're calling it a surge at close to 4%. Yep, 3.8%. It rose much better than they expected. 2.1% was the estimate from Dow Jones. A um, couple of interesting, yeah. What do we take from that? Yeah, parts in here. We had online shopping contributed to the most of the percentage. It said with non-store retailers, so those online stores, gaining fourteen point five percent. Furnishings, home furnishings, and such were up seven point two, and motor vehicle and parts dealers saw a five point seven percent increase. So, um, again, the consumer is strong right now. Consumers say they're worried about inflation. We're hearing about this, and yet. The spend keeps happening, which is kind of an interesting, uh, you know, thought. Does that spending, uh, does that consumer uh, confidence in spending do much with regard to inflation? Yes, it does, of course. Yeah, we're seeing, of course, the demand is high, right? So we see uh, the surge in buying. Uh, We're seeing a shortage of just about everything right now, although in this same report, they did say a separate report or actually a different report uh, came out today showing that industrial production jumped 1.4 percent in January. It says higher than what was forecasted of a half a percent. Um, So and inventories were also uh, increasing. So what you're seeing is in certain areas of the economy, production may be uh, gaining, regaining some of the capacity that they need to keep up with the demand, but that's not in everything because I, I saw. I don't think um, it's in autos yet. Yeah, it's not in autos okay. yet, and I also saw that it, in home builders, uh-huh. uh, there was an issue with supply chain issues for home builders appearing to get worse. It says, uh, in some cases, they're talking about still surging prices for lumber, uh, disruptions over waiting on things such as cabinets. They said garage doors, countertops. Uh, plumbing supplies. So all of these things are still, uh, you know, in high demand, in short supply, and it is causing some challenges for home builders right now. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what, Seth, what if you sold your house and with a lease back maybe of a few months to stay in the home because you're waiting for your new house that was being built and the builder told you it was expected to be ready Uh, for you to move in uh, March 1st. And it ain't. And all of a sudden, because of all of these delays, you're not going to get in until June 1st. What are you going to do? You're going to slow down the buying. Uh, It's very possible. And the challenge that we're also seeing is the rising cost of... Housing and so forth is is uh, a problem for some first time home buyers and and even uh, maybe second or third time home buyers. The challenge is is hey, uh, interest rates are going to be going up as well. Yeah. So how do we slow everything down? Well, in order to slow down inflation, which is better for our wallets, we've got to raise interest rates, which could be bad for those trying to buy a home. Yeah. So you're kind of caught in the middle. Uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Yeah, certain industries are always going to take it a little more on the on the on the cheek, so to speak, yeah. aren't they? They uh, they are. Yeah, yeah. I was just reading too. You know, um, depending on what transpires over 
between Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. the oil oil yeah, industry yeah. here might be going through some new throws as well. Possibly. Yeah, we might start yeah. to see the prices get to a point yep. to where, again, we're going to be forced, yep. as you know, uh, maybe to go back on some of the policies of the current administration and allow yep. uh, some more oil drilling in this country, which probably, again, being independent, nothing wrong with that. And if uh, the prices go higher and higher, you know, the temptation to do it is going to be all the greater as well exactly. by, by the oil companies, anyway, exactly. by the drilling and oil yeah. companies. Yeah, because it'll make sense for them, you bet. There's a lot to watch here, John. A lot to watch. And people, again, it's hard for them to, you know, thinking, what am I going to do to retire? How am I going to retire? How, where am I going to get the money yeah. from? How yeah. much can I take from my yeah. – that's what we do for clients. Yeah. I want people to know that there are things you can do. Uh, please reach out to us. Let us sit down and talk about that with you and see how we can help you get through all this and, and get to that comfortable retirement. One, one of the things you're great out too, is talking about timing. You know, mm-hmm. timing. You may want X, let's say a house, and right. you may be perfectly on the way of getting there and getting the house you want, but maybe not right yet, right? Maybe just uh, very not. Very possible. The timing is important. Had a, had a discussion with a, right. a, a client the other day about that. They wanted a second home possibly, yeah. and I said, maybe now's not the best yeah, time yeah, to do yeah. that. Maybe we wait and see for another year or two before you make that decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good work, John. Thank you, sir. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Fenrin Sipicon, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Thank you, you, John Dabrowski. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, coming to you live from the Guns Etc. studios. We are joined every Wednesday, delightfully so, by Brett W. Johnson. He is our Robert Jackson Fellow in Constitutional Studies. He's a partner at the law offices of Snell and Wilmer, uh, Brett, uh, thanks for the uh, time off last week. Uh, welcome back, and uh, back to work. <laughs> How are you? Absolutely. Glad to be back. <laughs> Great. There's a lot flying around right now, legally, constitutionally, Supreme Court, even a lot of stuff coming out of Arizona, which is always interesting. Arizona tends to make some interesting law uh, for the nation, especially on the Constitution. But uh, let me talk to you about another A state, Alabama. Uh, Supreme Court in a redistricting case did something that's got the New York Times and the Washington Post all upset. What's going on with the Supreme Court and Alabama and redistricting? Yeah, perfect. So the Supreme Court last week um, came down on a, a consolidated case. There were two cases brought in Alabama concerning the, the redistricting lines in that state for, for the congressional lines. And um, as, as everything, uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, the redistricting follows the census. So the census data came out, and actually Alabama's population didn't change too much, and actually the demographics of it didn't change too much, which is very important. But what, when the state redistricted in this, in this case, they actually chose not to make race an issue, which we're doing it blind and basically using the other factors, as it has traditionally done, and that's inside their constitution, primarily based off of counties, and, and um, unlike Arizona, they actually look at incumbency and some other factors. And in doing so, they came up with their map. Well, it was immediately challenged, and basically it said is that, you know, under, under previous redistricting, there was one district which was for African Americans, and that the African Americans were entitled to a second district based off of traditional redistricting measures, i.e. there was compact, African Americans are re- living in this urban area, and instead, that second district was what they call cracked and broken up into three other districts, which just happened to be in, in some other counties. So the plaintiffs brought, brought the case. Um, a three-judge panel was, uh, was the one who reviewed it. Uh, interestingly, uh, two of the judges on that three-judge panel were Trump appointees, and they came out with a pretty um, long and extensive opinion 
determining that the Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which says that African-American or minorities in general, that they have to be able to have the ability to elect representatives of choice, was violated. What the Supreme Court then did is put a stay on that. So what there's a misunderstanding in many quarters is that the Supreme Court overruled the district court and allowed basically these maps to go forward. That is true. The maps will go forward, but the Supreme Court did not pass judgment on the merits of what what the claim is, and that's very important. So Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, in which I am not even close to kindergarten level of being in any sense an expert, but I know you spend a lot of time on this. This generally, if I were to just do a the back of the envelope description of it, this is generally the section that prohibits uh, discrimination based on, uh, I think, race, right? This, that, that, that's what Section 2 is about, isn't it? Uh, close. That's the 14th Amendment. Okay. <laughs> so the 14th Amendment is, is one of what we call the bookend okay. on, on race discrimination, and basically race should not be a factor. The one exception to that is the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and in there is Section 2. And Section 2 says that if there are minority groups that are congregating in one area, you know, there's enough numbers of them, and they vote differently than the white population. Okay. Okay, and that's not just for Republicans or Democrats, because quite honestly, this came out of a lot of elections in the South based off of Democratic primaries. Right. And if the, if the uh, minorities are voting differently, they should, if, and, but they're, they're close enough, they should be able to elect representatives of their choice. And you can't gerrymander around them to ensure that the whites are controlling those districts. It's interesting that the law contemplates voting based on voting decisions based on racial categories. I mean, I know that's an argument that 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 isn't before anyone right now, but it's just interesting to me that that's the theory behind the law, the theory behind the law, right, that that based on your skin color, you're going to vote differently than someone of a different skin color. That that seems to be what's what's at the wholesale level here. That's right. And actually, there's there's whole studies that have to be done as part of that analysis to to, to make that determination. And, and that's the other book. And you brought up the 14th Amendment that's called the Shaw Doctrine, which says that, hey, you cannot gerrymander for based off of race. Section two might be a, a justifiable excuse, but you really have to limit it. And that's what's important on the Supreme Court decision. The majority of the, of the Supreme Court, all they said was, we're, we're putting a hold on it. And the reason being is because there's an election next month that these maps need to be used. Okay. The candidates obviously have to file their papers. They have to, administrators have to prepare for the election. And so they ran out of time. Interesting enough, for those in Arizona, it's based off of the Purcell Doctrine. And many people will remember Helen Purcell. Oh, yeah, our American Maricopa, Maricopa, yeah, yeah, yeah. Reporter. yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole doctrine based off of Helen Purcell and Supreme Court jurisprudence. That says as you get closer to an election, regardless of your political persuasion, Democrat, Republican, you cannot, the courts cannot get involved in that litigation unless it's egregious, basically. Interesting. And that's what the Supreme Court said here. We're a month away and we're going to put a halt to it. But interesting to your point about using race, what Chief Justice Roberts, who joined the minority on this case, he was in the four. Right. He was in the five. He was in the four of the five four. Okay, right. Right, and has previously said that he finds this as a very disturbing that we would do anything based off of race in regard to elections or government. 
And what he said is, is that the current reading of Section 2 was probably properly applied by the Alabama court. Uh-huh. And he said he would have still taken the case for uh-huh. review uh-huh. because he thinks Section 2 needs to be revised or needs to have another second look. But he just wouldn't have issued the state here because the three-court panel, in his mind, did um, apply the law correctly. I um, I had referenced earlier on in the segment, Brett, Arizona contributing a lot to the national constitutional law conversation precedent jurisprudence. Do we have that here? It's interesting. I raise it because – or do we have those problems here? Do we have those litigation efforts here? Alabama and Arizona are almost mirror images of each other if you exchange black and Hispanic populations. Alabama has about the black population. We have Hispanic, vice versa. Do we have that issue here? We do. And, okay. and uh, in fact, in Arizona's Constitution, the first criteria is compliance with the Voting Rights Act. And the Latino communities, you know, to the extent that they're still compact, the problem with the Arizona redistricting uh, from the Latino perspective this time around is, is that they did not increase in numbers, and they're now Latino populations are spread out. Uh-huh. They're, not, they're not as congregated as they used to be. Uh-huh. So that was really, and obviously, I was counsel for the redistricting commission, full yep. disclosure, yep. but that was a real struggle in Arizona to basically comply with the Section 2 obligation, understanding that the population had shifted. Gotcha, gotcha. Good, good work, Brett. Good work. Uh, appreciate your time. Appreciate your thoughts. Brett W. Johnson, partner at Snell & Wilmer, SWLaw.com. Until next week, sir, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, conversation, but you called on uh, a more pressing matter, sir. Go right ahead. <laughs> yes, yes, I did. By the way, love that last interview. Oh, thank Always you. have such wonderful guests. Oh, thank so you. informative. Thank you, thank you. Yep. Um, the... The thing I was thinking, remember yesterday I was talking about Reagan and his strategy to Russia or the Soviet Union at that time, and um, how for the 40 years prior, the, the, the pointy heads, the establishment, the, the highly educated, the PhDs and the rich acolytes, I mean, they, they looked and they had a strategy of mutually assured destruction. Right. Now, um, my whole point to that was that we should not look to them um, for the answers. And I was going to relate that to today in terms of the Republican strategy to winning, because those very same people uh, in the Republican Party said, uh, you know, uh, the era of Reagan is over as soon as he left. And they they ushered in 40 years of uh, capitulation. And so, but the same point reigns. Here's what Reagan did. And too many people think it was the military. One of the first acts Reagan did, he totally changed the perspective, very much like Donald Trump changed perspective. In January 1981, one of the very first acts he did was to deregulate gas production, as I mentioned. What it did was flood the world with oil. Because 90% of the Soviet Union's liquid cash was oil, he bled them white. Right. And, and then he coupled that with a military arms buildup, and the, you have the Soviet Union was a stretched all over the world, yep. half the world being communist or dictatorship under their rule and leadership, and he was bleeding them dry. Yep. And then he hit them with stiff competition and deregulated our economy, dropped the taxes, and the oil prices plunged, their revenues dried up, 
and they couldn't have not have the revenue. Now, how does that apply to today? Again, the Democrats, what the Democrats did was he shut down our oil pipeline. He shut down the production almost 40% in the United States, I believe I heard. I hope that's correct. But it's massive shutdown of production so that we depend on the uh, foreign producers, including Russia. Then, he's, then he approved the pipeline to, of the Russia to Germany and Europe so right. that their revenue is secure. Right. And their power, their financial and oil uh, power over Europe was increased. Yep. Think about that. That's yeah, no, listen, a short segment. No, your point is well taken, and let me put it into uh, one holistic point, if I might. If you want to confront powers or superpowers, opponents or enemies as the United States, there's only one way to do it, and it's if America is strong. If America is strong, and it doesn't just mean militarily, but it does mean militarily, but economically, and with a president who's forceful, a leader who actually embraces and embodies the notion of the word leader— you can't do it when America's weak. And when Joe Biden has been weakening in America and represents as himself an enfeebled president, well, if you're Vladimir Putin, you take the measure of a man. They took, as you say, the measure of Ronald Reagan. It was everything you said, the deregulation. It was Patco. It was everything you said. Everything you said. It was a strong leader in a strong country. And that's how we won. You're not going to do it with a weak leader and a weak country. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.